And I want us to think together this morning about how uh, gloom is caused in our lives and what is the cure. So really just the, the cause and cure of gloom. And I want us to see what causes gloom and what cures it from the nation of Judah. Jason has already read for us our text, so I will not take time to read that again. But I'm going to assert at the outset of this message that the people of Judah and their king Ahaz were in an emotional state of what I would call paralyzing gloom. It's described in our text as a gloom of anguish. Notice chapter 9 and verse 1. Well, actually, you can notice chapter 8 and verse 22. And they will look to the earth, these unbelieving people of the nation of Israel, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. Then notice by way of contrast. And I like the way Jason emphasized the word but, because this is what we must feel. A profound reversal is taking place. But there will be no gloom for who her who was in anguish. So this gloom is associated in our text with anguish. But what accounts for the gloom of Judah? Well, there was a cause. There was an immediate cause, and there was an ultimate cause. And I want to suggest to you that the immediate cause was the fear of impending doom. I've already used that word. The doom that they feared was a destruction that might soon come from their enemies, either from uh, the nation of Syria, which was hooking up with the northern tribes of Israel, or more fearfully, the, the doom and the judgment and destruction that might come from Assyria. I wish we had a big map so you could sort of see where they're coming from. Syria is a little bit north of Israel. Assyria is north and east. And these nations threatened the livelihood of the nation of Judah, the southern tribe, the southern kingdom, and that was brought about by God because of their sinfulness. So that was the immediate cause of their gloom. There was an actual threat taking place in the life of King Ahaz at this very time. And you'll see that if you go back just for a moment to chapter 7 and verse 1. Let's flip there for a second. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, there's one of the nations I mentioned, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. You all with me that the nation of Israel was divided, the kingdom was divided at this time? Ten tribes to the north, two to the south. For the most part, the northern tribes were ungodly, and the southern tribes tended to be more godly. And so there was sort of a civil war and breakdown between these two portions of the kingdom. Here you have Israel, the northern tribes, aligning themselves with Syria. And what were they going to do? Well, it says in verse 1, they came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. That would be against Judah. And if you'll notice in verse 2, it says, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. When's the last time you've been that scared? That you were just shaking 
like a tree being blown by the wind. Ahaz and his people were deeply distressed, and this catapulted them into a sense of gloom because of the prospect of being invaded by Syria and Israel. But there was something more, and it was coming through prophecy, and it was be the destruction from Assyria. And you see that prophesied in verse 17 of chapter 7. So since you're there, just notice verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Terrible judgment is going to come. Notice verse 20. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria. He's going to be the instrument of this judgment. And then if you will notice verse 23. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. Terrible judgment, impending judgment coming also in the future from the nation of Assyria. And it was this impending doom, either immediately by Israel and Syria, or later, according to the prophecy of Isaiah from Assyria, it was this impending doom that thrust them into serious desperation and distress and anger. Let me just quickly show you that now. Go back to chapter 8 and notice verse 21. Here's what it's going to be like once Assyria comes into the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. They will pass through the land. Now we're talking about the people of Judah. The people, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. These people are mad at God. These These people in Judah are angry with their God and turn their faces upward. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. In verse 21, they're looking up because they're mad at God. In verse 22, they look to the earth. And wherever they look, all they see is distress and darkness, and all they feel is the gloom of anguish. Those were the immediate causes of their gloom. But what was the ultimate, what was the primary, the fundamental cause of Judah's gloom? What lay behind and underneath their fear and their desperation and their distress and their anger toward God and their darkness of soul? Well, the answer is really quite simple. Two things, unbelief and disobedience in that order. Because unbelief always produces disobedience. And unbelief and disobedience had to be responded to by God himself. And so he is the one who raises up Syria. He is the one who sends us Syria. At the root of this gloom is unbelief producing disobedience resulting in judgment from God. But notice the unbelief. If you go back with me for just a moment to chapter 7 and verse 4. We've already read it. You saw that even um, Ahaz himself 
was shaking like a tree in the wind. Does that sound like a godly king who's known for his faith and trust in the God of Judah? No. And he was even told very explicitly in verse 7 by by Elijah that Syria and Israel were not going to conquer them. Look what it says in the last part or in the first part of verse 7. It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Ahaz, do you know who's talking to you? This is this is Isaiah. He's telling you that it's not going to happen. And then Isaiah exhorts Ahaz and says in the last part of verse 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Unbelief. Unbelief was characterizing this nation. And then when you come to, well, I think I'll just forego looking at these other passages. I'm simply trying to point out to you that there's, there's a lot of unbelief on the part of Judah and their king. And that unbelief was resulting in disobedience. So, dear people, if they had believed and obeyed God, if they had remained firm in their faith, if they had held on tightly to the word of God, which Isaiah was doing, if they had first and foremost feared the Lord, just notice chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. God is now talking to Isaiah. Isaiah is the only one who has faith. And God comes to Isaiah and he says in verse 12, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear. Isaiah, don't, don't let these people produce fear in you. Don't fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. If they had only been like Isaiah, this nation would have prospered under God's blessing and would not have come into the bondage of Assyria. They would have enjoyed freedom and abundance and safety and peace, but sadly, they didn't. So that's the cause of their gloom. So much for the cause. Impending doom caused by the disobedience of unbelief. Now, I want to turn immediately to the cure. Two parts of my outline. The cause of gloom, the cure for gloom. Just to review, and what happened with Judah can happen with us. If we do not trust God and obey him, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. If we don't trust God and obey him, we will come under some form of chastisement or at least have a deeply troubled conscience and we will begin to feel and fear some kind of consequence from God and we will live with a sense of gloom. We don't have to live with gloom. So that was the cause. Well, what is the cure? What was the cure for Judah? Well, the cure for Judah is prophesied for us in this ninth chapter. And I want us to notice that now. A cure was surely prophesied. And I'm going to say this that the cure was actually a gospel 
cure. And when I say a gospel cure, I don't mean just generally good news. I mean gospel in the sense of revolving around and rooted in and resting upon the coming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas cure for doom and gloom was Christ. Notice verse 1. But there will be, that's in the future, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now, I need to explain something. I hope I can make this clear. I wondered this week, how can I make this clear? What Isaiah is doing now is he is speaking prophetically. And he's saying, if I can just sort of illustrate this way, here we are. We are in a state of gloom. But a day is coming when there will be no gloom. And Isaiah, as it were, transfers himself on the other side of what he's going to tell them is going to happen. And he says, now there is no gloom because of what God does for Judah. So what he's saying, he speaks of as if it had already happened. But mind you, it hasn't happened yet. Obviously, this is 700 and roughly 35 years before Jesus was even born. But he's going to tell the nation about a coming Redeemer. And it's so certain that he speaks of that which is going to come and that which is going to happen as if it had already happened. This is sort of a typical prophetic device. The prophet goes beyond what he's going to tell the people is going to happen and looks back so that they can see it as if it had already happened and they can visualize it better. That's exactly what he's doing. So when he says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, he's looking back on the anguish that's still actually ahead of them. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. I hope I'm not confusing you. It hasn't actually happened yet because Assyria hasn't actually come to bring this contempt. But in the mind's eye of the prophet Isaiah, it has already come. But it's over. Because the last part of verse 1 says, In the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And if, if that's confusing to you, the way of the sea just from the northeast of the land of Israel was, was Mesopotamia. And, and those nations found their trade route to go down through the way of the sea because off to the west was the Mediterranean Sea beyond the Jordan. And so it came to be known as the way of the sea and so many nations in, came into northern Israel during their time of unbelief to distress them that it actually came to be called Galilee of the Gentiles. So that's all he's talking about. That there, he's saying that the contempt that, that Naphtali and Zebulun, you understand those are tribes of Israel in the northern part of Israel in what we would now call Galilee. They were going to experience contempt from Assyria. But that contempt in the latter time is going to be made glorious. 
Now, do you see some contrasts here? I want you to appreciate these contrasts. Look at verse 22 of chapter 8. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. Just fix on those two words for a moment, darkness and gloom. Now come to verse 9 and see the contrast. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And go down to verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So we have darkness and light. We have gloom and we have joy. We have contempt and we have glory. This is the great contest. This contrast, this is the great reversal that God himself is going to bring around, bring about. But how did Judah get from gloom to no gloom? How did Judah get from deep darkness to great light, from contempt to glory? Well, the rest of the passage is going to tell us. And again, the answer is a gospel answer. This great reversal of gloom and darkness and distress to and contempt to joy and light and glory and freedom was brought about by the grace of God through the coming of his final consummate king. Now, I just said something very significant. I'm answering my question. How was this reversal to take place so that someday those who lived in darkness and gloom would no longer experience darkness and gloom? God was sending his son into the world to become the light of the world and to become the final king, the consummate king. One who will sit as the ultimate heir of the throne of David. Notice verse 7, of the increase of his government, I'm from chapter 9, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. You know that the Old Testament prophesied repeatedly that someday out of David's loins would come a final king who would sit on his throne and set up a kingdom that would never, ever, ever come to an end. That's the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the way that God cured the doom. This coming king established his own spiritual kingdom. This coming king took the government upon his shoulders. You see that at the end of verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. This coming king set up a government that brings about peace. You see that in verse 7. The increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. Peace with God, the peace of God, peace with one another, reconciliation for sinners and their relationship to God. And he's going to establish a government that is characterized by righteousness and justice. You see that also in verse 7. A government and a kingdom that will continue to increase like the growth of the mustard seed. Like the spread of yeast in dough, remember the parables of our Savior, the kingdom parables. And this, this kingdom is going to grow and increase until it consummates and until it culminates 
in the return of our Savior and becomes the kingdom of glory. The kingdom of grace becomes the kingdom of glory. I really want you to appreciate that word increase in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. As we sit here this morning, the kingdom of our Savior is increasing. His government is increasing. It is growing. It is expanding. We prayed today for some peoples in India. Worldwide, his kingdom advances. It doesn't look like it from our perspective, but God sees what is happening. The government is continually increasing by God's grace. That's what's happening. That's the cure. So, dear people, please appreciate that this prophecy in chapter 9, especially in verses 1 through 3 and so forth, isn't primarily about Israel and Judah's return from Assyria or from Babylonian captivity. That did happen. But this description is way too glorious for that return, way too glorious. This description has to be about the coming of our Savior and the establishing of his spiritual kingdom. And that did happen. They did return from Assyria and from Babylonian captivity. But when they got back, the glory was never like it once was, and they never achieved it again. Yes, they rebuilt the temple, and yes, they rebuilt the walls. But in a sense, Ichabod was still true. The glory had departed. That return of those who were taken captive into Assyrian Babylon was designed by God to be typical. It was a foreshadowing of a greater glory to come, the ingathering of all the nations, the establishing of a spiritual Israel, including all of the elect from ethnic Israel and all of the elect from the Gentiles, reaching its final conclusion and descending in what the book of Revelation in chapter 1 pictures for us as a new Jerusalem out of heaven. And you remember that the walls were named after the 12 tribes of Israel, the gates, I should say. And the foundation was laid upon 12 stones of the 12 apostles. This is the old and the new covenant people of God joined together once and for all in eternity. But what what Isaiah is telling us about is that this coming king is going to establish that kingdom. And it's going to consummate in the new Jerusalem. That's exactly what he's talking about. That's what was being typified here. The eventual demise of Assyria. You'll notice, if I could just quickly point this out, in verse uh, 3, there's this discussion of great joy that's going to come, increased joy, rejoice, like the joy that people have when the harvest is brought in, like the gladness people experience when they have Uh, gotten a victory over their enemy, and they divide the spoil. And then he explains how that joy is really actually going to come because the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppression has been broken. That's true of Assyria. The people of Judah were allowed to come back. But it's a picture of a spiritual oppression broken by God in the lives of his people. And when you come to verse 5, This is a military picture for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
You know, after a, a battle and you won and you took the spoils and the things you wanted to keep, you know, you didn't leave everything out in the field. So they would take the clothing and the articles of their of their former enemies that had all been killed. They'd put them in a big pile, all the boots and all the clothing that was bloody, and they'd set them on fire. And that bonfire would be a great picture of their victory. This is a picture of the triumph of Christ over our enemy and the and the grounds for our being set free from our yoke of burden and and our oppressor and then he gets to the real cause of this great deliverance and the most amazing thing that God brings to pass is a child how does he bring this great deliverance for the people of God? Well, you know, the zeal of the Lord in the last part of verse 7, of course, brings it to pass. But by what means? Most unexpectedly, through a child. This acts exactly what verse 6 says. For all these wonderful things causing joy are going to happen to the people of God. They will no longer live in gloom and distress and darkness. Here's the reason. For a child is born, to us a son is given. This is to us, and that literally includes us who are gathered here today. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. This is amazing. This is the child, by the way, that we saw last Sunday morning, if you were here, and I took us very quickly to... Um, Revelation 12, where we saw the pregnant woman representing the nation of Israel ready to give birth to a man-child. And it was, of course, the Messiah. And the moment that the Messiah was born, seemingly he was caught up to heaven and the, the dragon couldn't kill him, though the devil has always wanted to keep Jesus from doing what was necessary for our salvation. But he couldn't. This is the same child. This is the same child of chapter 7 and verse 14, which is often a text preached on at this time of the year. You know that one so well. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's who this child is. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this great deliverance, this final kingdom, this wonderful government, this unspeakable peace was purchased by this child who became a man and this son who was given it all came from him he lived a sinless life he died a substitutionary death in order to purchase this kingdom and the great reversal of the doom and the gloom began to take place in the very region where judah experienced defeat and contempt do you see that we read that in verse one he it says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And why did Jason read for us Matthew chapter 4? Because it clearly says that Jesus left Nazareth and went to Capernaum in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And we have a verbatim quote of our text. What is the point? The point is that Matthew makes it very clear 
that Jesus Christ was that son, was that child, came to bring about this great deliverance. It's exactly what the point is. And so a light had dawned. And that's what the text says. No wonder Jesus called himself the light of the world. He is our escape from darkness. So do you see any analogies here? If if this were just a a class, you know, a Bible study, I'd really like to pause. And I'd like to ask you, what analogies do you see between Judah of old and those of us who are gathered here today? And I hope that you would see several things, because there are several things. And for example, Judah was unbelieving. We are unbelieving. Judah was disobedient because of their unbelief. We're disobedient. Judah was under judgment. We are under judgment by nature. Judah was facing doom. We're facing doom if we're not right with God. Judah was experiencing gloom. We experience gloom if we're not forgiven of our sins. Judah was under oppression. We are under oppression by someone worse than the imperialistic king of Assyria, the devil himself. Judah was in darkness. We're in darkness. Judah needed deliverance. We need deliverance. Judah had a cure. We have a cure. I'm not imposing these parallels. They're there. They're in the passage, and and they're designed for us to see. And this deliverance for us from all of these terrible things that caused gloom for Judah and gloom for us, this deliverance is all wrapped up in this child who would become a king. And you know what? I haven't even said a single word about what he shall be called. I mean, said a word about that. The great passage, the great text here, the great verses, verse 6 and verse 7. And all I'm going to say is there's this fourfold name. I think it's better to see these as belonging together in couplets as opposed to his name shall be called Wonderful Comma, Counselor Comma. I think we should see it as Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is his name. This child who was born, this son who was given, upon whom the government would rest, who was establishing a kingdom, a kingdom that would ever increase and never end, a kingdom characterized by peace and righteousness and judgment. This one can only be described as one who is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. How rich are those titles for our Savior? Do you need that? I was thinking again this week, you know what I really needed before I was converted and still need? I really need a counselor. I really need a counselor. I have so many dilemmas and so many pronouncements to be misdirected in my life. But I don't just need a a good counselor. You know what I need? I need a wonderful counselor. You know what else I need? I need power. I need a God with a capital G. I need a mighty God. 
No man can do for me what I need done. But I want one who is fatherlike and will never quit being a father to me. I want one who would be an everlasting father. Yes, Jesus is called a father here. Don't let that trouble you because the the name father as far as belonging to the Trinity had not yet been revealed in the scriptures, but the the son is fatherlike. We may think of him, in fact, we are required to think of the Lord Jesus as an everlasting father, not to be confused with God the Father in the Trinity. I need a father who loves and cares tenderly and compassionate for me and will never quit. You know what else I need? I need peace. I need peace in my soul. I need to know I have peace with God, and I need the peace of God. And living in this world with all the turmoil and the war against sin and, and all of the other difficulties in life, I need peace. What I really need is a prince of peace. These are the things that Jesus is to all who believe and trust in him. I'm going to read to you what Ray Ortland said about this. He said, look at Jesus as a wonderful counselor. He has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As a mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting Father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. As the Prince of Peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies. Let's welcome his dominion. Isn't that beautiful? And so, that's who this one is who sits on this throne. He is to his people, to those who trust in him, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a Prince of Peace. And isn't it amazing that this kingdom not only increases in our own souls, do you, do you experience the advancement of Christ's kingdom? Is, you, is his kingdom advancing? Is it ever increasing in your life? It should be, because he set up his throne in your life. But the kingdom in this world is ever advancing, and the kingdom of peace itself is ever advancing. And here's what's sort of mystical and just blows our minds when we think about it. The wonder and the glory and the joy of heaven itself will ever increase. Even our sense of peace will get greater and greater and greater throughout the eons of eternity. Again, to quote Ortland, he says, there will never come one moment when we will say, this is the limit. He's talking now about in eternity, on the renewed earth, if you like to think of it as in heaven right now. There will never come a moment when we will say, this is the limit. He can't think of anything new. We've seen it all. No. The finite will experience ever more wonderfully the infinite. And every new moment will be better than the last. Think about that. Every new moment will be better than the last. Yeah, because our understanding of God and his glory will be ever increasing. And that will bring us new joy and new peace and a new sense of wonder. And we'll just feel like we can't contain anymore. But he'll just keep doing that. And because he is infinite, he'll never say, that's it. I've told you everything I can tell you. There's nothing more I can show you. There's nothing more to be seen. It's it. That would be wonderful enough. But God can't do that because he's infinite in his glory. And so this kingdom that we've been made a part of, which is ever increasing, a kingdom of peace, is something we're going to enjoy more and more and more throughout the eons of eternity. It's amazing. 
And that is the prospect. You talk about something to do away with gloom. Wow. That's the cure for gloom. And I have to say to you, if such a light is available to deliver us from such darkness, if such a counselor is available to give us such guidance and direction, if such power is ours, the power of a mighty God to deliver us from all of our enemies, if such fatherly kindness is available to us to be protected and guided and guarded, if such peace is available to us, if such joy, such stability, such deliverance from instability, such a kingdom, one that is permanent and irreplaceable, if such a payment for our sins is available for such guilty sinners as we are, this is my question. If all of these things are available, if all of these things are possible, why on earth would any sane human being not take hold of all of it by faith and just revel in it and just exult in it and in its delights. We who are Christians can understand why those of you who are not Christians wouldn't want what we have except we remember when we didn't want it either. And now we know why we didn't want it. And recently we've gotten help in understanding that through Pastor Rich. It's because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we couldn't see it. And we couldn't desire it. And that just shows us again how desperately we need the grace of God. So, dear people, I want to conclude. And this is what I want to say to you. And I apologize, if perhaps necessary, for sort of the tedious part of explaining the whole business about Judah. But that's where the passage is found. And I want to jump away from its historical context. If that was tedious, dismiss all that and understand this. That the cause and the cure of Judah's doom and gloom is largely the same as ours. I hope you at least saw that. They were in gloom because doom was coming. They were doom was coming because of their unbelief, which led to disobedience. And God isn't going to tolerate that. And when we when we stand before impending doom, we feel gloom. And we should feel gloom. And the gloom that we should feel if we are outside of Christ should be a million times worse than the gloom of Ahaz and the people of Judah, because it's eternal judgment. So I say again that the cause and cure of Judah's doom and gloom is largely the same as ours. The cure, in fact, is identical. The cure is God's gift to us. Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Christ is God's gift to us. Not just at Christmas, but for all of life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what we need to think about. In just a few days, it will be Christmas Day again. And as Pastor Keith prayed, we all know that Christmas didn't, the birth of Christ didn't happen exactly at this time. Probably more like in March. 
But this is the time we think about it. And what a glorious thing to think about. Is it the greatest act of God in redemptive history? No. The greatest act of God in redemptive history was Christ dying on the cross and making an atonement for our sins and propitiating the wrath of God toward us. But dear ones, he could not have done that without coming here. Talk about contextualization. That was the subject of the topic in last week's missions class. He came down and identified with us and took on our humanity. A son was given. A child was born. He had to live in our place. The incarnation was essential for God's plan with regard to substitution. He had to become one of us. And so even though it all consummates in the cross, never, never, never underestimate the gift of the Son. Never underestimate the glory of the incarnation. He who thought it not robbery to be equal with God made himself of no reputation and became a man and became a servant and willingly received the curse of God on our behalf. And this time of the year, we get to think about the glory, the glory of his incarnation, the glory of this gift. So then... This is what I say to you as I part the pulpit this morning and leave you. Dear friends, especially those of you who are not yet Christians, but also to those of us who are and still struggle with our sins, I commend to you again this morning the light of the world. The sovereign of an ever-increasing government, I commend to you a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. And I plead with you, embrace him for the first time or for the 10,000th time. Again, embrace him by faith. Enjoy him to the fullest. Exalt in him. Because he is our precious Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how do we find words to thank you for the gift of your Son? When we read that a Son is given, we know that he was born of the Virgin Mary and he was her Son. But ultimately, he was and is your Son. How we thank you for that gift. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you reversed the gloom and the doom. And that you brought light where there was darkness, and you brought liberty where there was oppression, and you brought glory where there was contempt. You brought peace where there was distress. Thank you. We praise you. Help us to love and trust you better. Be merciful to any here today who've never really looked upon you for the first time as their only hope. May they be honest about their gloom. And may they seek the cure in you. So bless us and help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.